0: This is Macro Horizons, Episode 18, Steepening Base Camp, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of May 13th, and a friendly reminder that nothing bad has ever happened on the 13th. Oh, wait. I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. It's been an eventful week in
2: global markets.
0: Ian, what's your take? You're right, Ben. It certainly was an exciting week. We had Trump follow through with additional tariffs. We had another disappointing CPI print. We had the takedown of the refunding auctions, all of which left the treasury market with yields toward the bottom of the range. The apprehension currently in the market isn't particularly surprising, although there does seem to be an intuitive struggle between the inflationary implications from additional tariffs and what it means to the global trade environment. Again, we've very much been of the mind that short-term inflationary impulses will ultimately be resolved in favor of lower yields as the market grows increasingly concerned about the state of global growth. Using the Fed's recent analysis on how much tariffs added to CPI during 2018, it's reasonable to assume that the most recent round of tariffs from the White House, if they are in place for the balance of the year, will add something north of half a percent to CPI. That complicates matters for the Fed, and it also makes it less obvious which direction the curve should go. In the short term, it should reduce the possibility that we see an insurance rate cut. On the other hand, we saw the three-month annualized rate of Core CPI print at 1.6%, which is its lowest since July of 2017. Inflation certainly is off to a rocky start in the second quarter. In fact, if we look at the combination of CPI and PPI and project what that should mean for core PCE, our assumption is that we'll see a downtick in the year-over-year core rate to 1.5%, putting it well into the troublesome area for the FOMC. If anything, recent events have simply reinforced some of our core beliefs for the market this year— The re-steepening of the yield curve still very much in play, bullish in nature. We saw the two-year sector trade with yields below two hundred twenty five, more aggressive pricing in of a rate cut in 2019, which is very consistent with the near-term risks in the Treasury market. As for the 10 year sector, 10's anchored comfortably below 250. We did see some early signs that the seasonal patterns remain relevant. We had a solid rally that has left the market, not in uncharted territory, however, toward the lower bound of this year's yield range. We also had the May refunding auctions, which went reasonably well, all things considered. My biggest takeaway from that was that there is, at this moment, a very clear cap for Treasury Yields. In the 10-year sector, it's 262. In the long bond, it's 3%. That is a market departure from what the market was thinking just four or five months ago. However, I think it's going to be important and informative as we go through the balance of the year. It certainly has been a defining week in the treasury market. We had the very typical seasonal rally get underway 10-year yields push back toward their lows we saw 2-year yields test 2.25 and so the question is is this as good as it gets john what were some of your takeaways so i think it's
3: increasingly clear that the treasury market is trying to price a bimodal outcome and what i mean by that is at the end of the day either the economic expansion is going to continue the fed's going to be able to stay on pause for a year two years, inflation's going to drift back up towards 2%, and you achieve the soft landing. That's option number one. The other option is impending recession, at which case, We're looking back to go to zero rather quickly. You mentioned twos at 225. There's an outstanding question as to whether they're a buy there. And I think what we're going to see is market sentiment flipping between impending recession and, oh, we can actually continue for a while, lead to some volatility back and forth. 225 will really depend on one's perception of the chances of a near term downturn. But I would continue to say that anytime two's back up near 235, 240, that's a great opportunity to get invested because you're basically locking in yields at the highs. There's a question, when's the next time we'll get there? And frankly, that's a large outstanding question without a clear
0: answer. Well, we also saw the reinversion of the three-month bill versus 10-year yield curve this week that was a really big deal the first time it happened recall all the press headlines and all of the attention that the topic got the big debate at that point was whether or not it signaled an imminent recession and john to your point we're still at the stage where the market is debating exactly what that means certainly have heard a lot of commentary that the yield curve doesn't mean what it used to certainly sympathetic to that notion However, if investors are content to continue buying 10 years with yields through the three-month bill, that is telling us something. Ben, what did you think of the most recent 10-year refunding auction?
2: Yeah, I think that was one of the big stories of this last week. And frankly, it was one of the weakest 10-year auctions we've seen in a long time. Bid to cover was the lowest since March 2009, and the 1.3 BIP tail was... Definitely nothing to write home about and is perhaps a little bit angst inducing. Something in the follow through that we heard a lot was that maybe given the escalation, so to speak, in the trade war, that some foreign accounts were using the auction or not using the auction, as it were, as a way to kind of strike back against rising tariffs.
0: As an argument that it might have been a shot over the proverbial bow, that makes sense.
2: Yeah, definitely, but I think it will be difficult to ever really know if that's the case. Obviously, the investor class data doesn't come out for a few weeks, But more impactful, I think, is that worry that maybe foreign accounts are starting to use auction purchasing or not auction purchasing as a bargaining chip could create some worry among other investors that it might be a good time to take a step back.
3: And that's a fair point, And it's something we certainly hear frequently, but I'm kind of sanguine on the whole idea. You know, if you remember last fall, there was a big drop in direct bidding. Everyone was thinking, oh, some massive account must be stepping back. Didn't really change the trajectory of treasury yields. And at the end of the day, Ben, to your point, we don't know exactly what happened, but what we do know is a lot of the drop came in the indirect side. And given the share that investment funds take of 10 year auctions, that's at least going to be a place I'm looking
2: at in addition to something foreign. Yeah. And I think, as we've talked about a lot, Whether or not an auction tails or stops through and what the underlying breakdown is, is interesting insofar as auction dynamics in and of themselves. But in terms of more material repricings and longer dated treasuries in particular, it's still the case that supply dynamics matter far less than the broader macro worries, inflation outlook, what have you.
0: The other thing that we haven't mentioned is that the 10-year auction was effectively struck at the low yield marks or pretty close. So the idea of selling $27 billion of a single bond issue at the highest prices in and of itself implies some type of liquidity premium.
2: And the fact that a 1.3 basis point tail is just that. It's 1.3 basis points. And the follow-through you saw on Thursday actually brought yields below where the auction stopped.
3: One risk I think we run on occasion because we put out so much high-frequency analysis or thoughts is that we tend to risk overweighting the noise. And it's something I try to be cognizant of. Ian, I know that you're constantly pressing me to look through that lens. And Ben, we went back and looked at how auction performance evolved following the last time bid to cover was this low. Was this the beginning of a trend or just kind of a blip in some element of
2: noise? No, I think you're exactly right that it's more noise around pretty large auctions at this point and certainly not tone setting in terms of the next percentage point move in yields.
0: One of the things that I have seen anecdotally heard a bit about and has been flowing through in future space is accounts interested in putting on 530s flatteners. Now, that's a counter trend move at this point, and it does Bring into question the idea, has that spread run its course, and is the market now going to be interested in extending further out the curve? Now, intuitively, it makes sense there'll be a point at which the curve has re-steepened far enough that there are counter-trend players looking for more than a simple in-range correction. And John, you've mentioned this several times in the past, the Fed's willingness to use the balance sheet as a policy tool implies that at some point, purchases further out the curve may once again become a reality.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's at this point, if we see a reasonable recession, my base case probably includes some form of QE. doesn't have to be the same size as before, but any type of asset purchase program such as that should at least cap 30-year yields. That being said, I still, from a fundamental perspective, think we have entered a period where 530s is cyclically steepening, but investors should look for some tactical options in order to implement flatteners, even if the longer-term trend is steeper. One other point in that regard I'd make, as we get further and further towards the end of the cycle five-year real yields are still positive. They're about 40 basis points or so now. They were negative as recently as September 2017. And it's not unreasonable to me to believe that they'll be back negative very likely before the end of
0: 2020, if not much earlier. So on the topic of the Fed and what the next cycle might or might not look like, there's been a lot of chatter about the testing of the repo facility. That's something that has been relevant and will continue to be relevant for the very front end of the market. John, what are your thoughts on that?
3: So what I think you're referencing is the New York Fed started operational testing of a repo facility. The way I interpret this, this does not mean that it's absolutely going to take place. This is just the Fed making sure that the pipes work so that were they to implement a standing repo facility, they know that the systems work. They know that the connections work. They know that the primary dealer community has the capacity to do so. So it's a necessary but insufficient step. But the fact that they're even testing it suggests that it is part of a conversation about markets. For example, in recent years, we've also seen the Fed test outright selling of some treasury holdings. That does not mean they're actually going to be selling from the portfolio. Just that the committee wants to know that if they employ this, they have the operational capacity to do so.
2: And I think another point to make on that is given what we saw with the IOER adjustment at the May meeting... It's clear that maybe the Fed is more willing to enact these sort of front end adjustments than we had initially anticipated. So I think, all else equal, that brings the likelihood of the formal introduction of the repo facility a bit further forward than we would have assumed just a few weeks ago.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. It's a development that suggests a higher likelihood of a repo facility being implemented, but still is by no means guaranteed. In in Powell's last press conference, he noted that this is still something that they're actively studying and, frankly, will tackle in coming meetings. So it looks like at least the conversation is being set up for such a facility, but it's not necessarily a done deal yet.
0: There do seem to be an increasing number of conversations within the Fed about potential new monetary policy measures at some future point in the cycle. Yield curve control has become relatively topical. I've heard a few comments, both from Fed officials as well as investors, that yield curve control might be an obvious step if the Fed is actually faced with a more material slowdown.
2: Yeah, this last week in particular, Brainerd mentioned that she would like to hear more about perhaps yield curve control in the very front end of the curve. But what struck us about that was that it might actually be a little bit bit redundant, given the influence that the introduction of the dot plot has had. And what we mean by that is when looking at the one and two-year part of the curve versus three-month bills, what you've seen historically is the one-year sector hardly ever deviates much from three-month bill yields. And what you've seen historically is when the Fed is on hold, one-year yields don't really materially deviate much from three-month yields. But further out the curve before the introduction of the SEP, two-year yields got as high as 100 basis points above the three-month bill. Now, that all changed when the dot plot came into effect and forward expectations were explicitly telegraphed. And that brought market pricing very quickly back in line with the message the Fed was trying to telegraph. So the question of yield curve control on the front end is, is it really necessary given how well the dot plot controls the front end of the curve?
0: Another way to look at it is perhaps the Fed is setting the market up for the elimination of the dot plot.
3: So that's entirely possible. And one way to think about yield curve control is it's an extra commitment by the Fed to keep rates lower for longer. So say the next time interest rates fall to the zero lower bound, you know I'm making up numbers here, but say the Fed says one-year bill rates will not get above 25 basis points or two-year treasury notes will not get above 25 basis points. In essence, what the Fed's saying is we're not hiking rates for the next year or two years in that world. That's a very strong commitment that in the current forward guidance framework is redundant. If you just look at the SCP during 2012, it wasn't showing any hikes anytime soon. But if they drop the SCP or they drop the dots more precisely, to your point, Ian, that kind of opens up a whole new forward guidance framework. Yield curve control could operate in that. But at least in my opinion, as long as the dots exist, it seems unnecessary and probably too big of a footprint in the market. And that conversation's all well and good. But Ian, how have we gotten this far without talking about the volatility in the equity
0: market this past week? Great observation, John. That was a big focal point in the market, both in treasuries as well, obviously, as in equities. A spike in equity market fall translates through to tighter financial conditions, tighter financial conditions then put the Fed back into play. And to some extent, that is what we saw transpire. Now, we know that the origin of it came from ongoing trade tensions. And if and when we finally get some type of durable resolution on that front, the idea that the market can sustainably return to pre-trade war levels is a bit baffling to me. After all, to a large extent, the White House has completely redefined the U.S.'s Presence on the world trade stage. And for that reason, we have seen, as we've noted in the past, an erosion of business confidence that has flowed through to equities, which has flowed through to an erosion of consumer confidence. And as we contemplate where the next slowdown might come from, our go to has always been the observation that major recessions in the US can often be attributed to the consumer.
2: But I still think it's fair to say that even after this latest pickup in volatility we've seen, a second triggering of the Powell put, so to speak, is still some ways off. And there are probably two good reasons
3: to think that, Ben. One is, sure, equities fell, but we're still relatively close to all-time highs, all things considered. The other is the impact on consumer confidence that Ian alluded to. Sure, by some metric, sentiment has stabilized or come down a little bit over the past six months, But we haven't seen a sharp drop yet, and I would attribute at least a solid chunk of that to ongoing strength in the labor market.
2: So you're saying it might not all come to a screeching halt?
0: Well, don't forget, three-month bills versus tens just inverted a basis point. Ben, don't panic. Panic. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a variety of inputs... The primary focus from our perspective will be retail sales. The Fed has said several times that they're banking on the rebound of the U.S. consumer. And so as the second quarter's data continues to flow in, any indication that this is in fact coming to fruition is going to be very important for monetary policy expectations. The ongoing trade war between Trump, China, and to a lesser extent the rest of the world, will continue to garner headlines. And while we don't expect any near-term resolution, positive developments could ultimately lead to a risk-on moment and provide a little upward pressure to Treasury yields. The idea that we should be consolidating toward the bottom of the yield range follows pretty intuitively. We don't see anything on the very near horizon that would break out yields to new lows for 2019. In fact, Short of a dismal retail sales print, we'd expect that the market will continue to build a volume bulge in and around the current zone as we move forward to more defining moments in terms of economic data and the global macro outlook. We remain focused on the shape of the yield curve, and 2's 10's put in an impressive steepening that brought the curve to 25 basis points, we've since backed off somewhat, but we continue to think that we're at the early stages of the cyclical re-steepening. That doesn't preclude a re-flattening in any duration grab if and when the global economic outlook dims. Last week we saw disappointing industrial production figures out of parts of Europe, it's interesting that the flow through to the U.S. Treasury market was limited, although 10-year boon yields did manage to fall deeper into negative territory. In the context of Europe, we're reminded that Brexit still remains an issue, although it's been pushed off As a fundamental bullish underpinning to the global rates market, however, we expect that that will be a persistent theme as the summer approaches. We'll also be eager to learn who replaces Draghi as the head of the ECB. Again, still a little bit early to have any solid indication on who will ultimately be in that seat. There are implications for if and when the ECB pushes either further into negative territory, for rates, expands to buying other assets, such as stocks, or simply explores the further usage of forward guidance. Beijing has been relatively quiet in terms of how they're going to address the most recent round of tariffs. A depreciation of the yuan comparable to what we saw in the wake of the first round of tariffs seems to be the go-to response. The biggest concern that triggers for us is... What happens to emerging market currencies in such an event? Suggesting such concerns would lead to a risk-off moment in the treasury market might be understating the issue, but as is often the case, it really comes down to the order of magnitude and the speed with which the PBOC allows the yuan to depreciate. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As we contemplate episode 19, we too are surprised that we've made it to this point without our characters meeting an early end. In that vein, I'd like to wish John Hill the best of luck on his upcoming free solo attempt. What's the worst that could happen? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's ian.lyngen dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at b-m-o dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BEMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you, or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.